Hello once again, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Monolith Seeker. I am your host, Steve Osborne, and today we are going to be continuing the series on reincarnation, this time with a focus on what happens after you die. Um, if you have not listened to the episode before about children who remember past lives, I think that that would be a good place to start before listening to this episode. Um, there are going to be some concepts from that episode that carry over into this one. I will be making references back to that. Um, and something I would like to say outright is that I, every time I try to sit down and do one of these episodes, I realize I'm biting off a little bit more than I can chew. And uh, that's something that happened with this one specifically. I was going to make an entire episode on what happens after you die. And this was actually supposed to be the first part of the conversation on reincarnation. But um, <laughs> this topic in particular is way too big to try to fit all into one episode. Um, this is one of the oldest questions that mankind has ever asked. And... It's been researched from so many different angles, and there's been so many different people who have picked up on this research. When it came to children who remember past lives, there were only a handful of major researchers who were recognized for that. So that was easy to compile that, read a few books, and present it to you this way. But um, as far as near-death experiences and deathbed visions and those sorts of things, the research spans all the way back to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Plato. You know, it's all ancient. It's so old. And even just to focus on modern people who, um, you know, have done different research in this area, is uh, the scope is just too wide. So for this episode in particular, I am going to be focusing on the near-death experience research of Raymond Moody. Um and before I dive into that all the way, I would like to say up top that I know that death right now is a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people are experiencing the loss of loved ones, friends, family. Um, I know even people that I've just met playing music. There's so many people going, and it's not even all just because of the pandemic. You know, I've lost three people in my immediate family. None of them died of COVID. It just seems like this is something that is really in the air right now, and as sensitive as that makes this topic, I think that also makes it more relevant than ever before. And, um, you know, I'm also going to be getting into darker things like suicide just a little bit, more in the next episode, but um, I know that those things can be really heavy and hard, and in no way am I trying to take away from or stifle anyone's grief over their situation. I believe grief is 100% important, something that we should feel fully and allow to enter our lives because that's part of this whole experience of losing people. It's part of moving through it and understanding what they meant to us. And I think that that is a beautiful and, like I said, important thing. But hopefully some of the information that I give you in this episode and the next couple episodes will be a little bit uplifting and help you maybe look forward to something more uh, after this whole physical experience is over. With all of that said, let's go ahead and jump into Raymond Moody and his research. So right off the top, I want to say that Raymond Moody is a doctor in philosophy and medicine. He uh, went. He's seems to be like a lifelong academic. When he's not learning, he's teaching. Um, he's a grief counselor. He's uh, got so many things on his plate all the time. I don't know how he does it, but 
studying near-death experiences has been a passion of his since he first heard one in school for philosophy. Um, a man by the name of Dr. George Ritchie shared his near-death experience with Raymond Moody before the term near-death experiences was ever coined because Raymond Moody was the one to coin it in 1975 with his book Life After Life. But um, Dr. George Ritchie's story really sparked Moody's interest in the topic because the, some of the things that Ritchie describes kind of follows the lines of ancient stories of what happens after death. Like in Plato's Republic, he talks about a soldier who was killed on the battlefield and when he was brought back to the funeral pyre, he woke up on the funeral pyre and told them, like, I have been to death's door. When I died, I have left my body. I saw the other soldiers on the field rise up to meet me in the sky and I watched them file through these different doors when we got to the other side of the light. And the people who were watching the doors told me when I tried to walk through that it wasn't my time and that I need to go back and explain to you what I've seen. Um, you know, and that kind of lines up with what was in the Egyptian Book of the Dead and a little bit of what's in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. All of these have their own cultural bend on them. But as you'll see with different near-death experiences, that's the case for everybody. There are certain similarities that are very glaring and stand out, but they're also very tinted by the lens of whatever culture, religion, spiritual experience that you have had during your life. So to get into Dr. George Ritchie's experience a little bit, because it's kind of amazing, um, he was a private in the military stationed in Texas in the late 1940s. He had just been accepted into medical school and was actually packing up to leave when he came down with a terrible respiratory infection. Um, he got super sick, full-blown double pneumonia, um, and while he was in the hospital, the attendant was doing his rounds and came around and found him dead. He had basically drowned in his own lung fluids, and uh, you know he was tested. He had no blood pressure, no pulse, wasn't breathing. They pronounced him dead. They took him back to the morgue, put the sheet over his head. And then around that time, the attendant saw his hand move. Um, so after a little bit of talking with his commanding officer, the doctor in charge, um, you know, the attendant was like, look, I saw this guy's hand move. You need to inspect him again. So he inspected him again. Still no blood pressure, still no pulse, still no breathing. But the attendant was convinced. And somehow, uh, Richie says that he's very, you know, kind of astounded by this, that this, you know, lower level officer was able to convince his commanding officer to give Richie a shot of adrenaline to the heart. And they did that and he revived. And Richie says from that point that he, uh, you know, he has a very different story of what happened. It wasn't just him dead. Um, he says that as he was getting worse and worse and worse, he all of a sudden started to feel better uh, out of nowhere. And he just sat up and without thinking, he wanted to get to medical school so bad, he just took off. And he was in such a hurry that when he left, he didn't even really pay attention to the fact that he walked right through someone on the way out the door. Um, he gets out the door, and again, he's so dead set on getting to Richmond for medical school that he doesn't even really pay attention to the fact that he's floating 500 feet in the air. And he just takes off in the direction that he thinks Richmond is. And as he's going, he starts to realize that he's never been to Richmond before, and he doesn't know if he's even headed the right direction, definitely. 
So he spots a small town. He comes down in the town and uh, lands next to an all-night cafe. He describes it as a big white building that was very distinct to him. And uh, he tries to stop a guy who's walking in the front door and ask him for directions. And the guy doesn't hear him, doesn't interact with him at all. So he tries to touch him to get his attention and his hand goes right through his face. So he's baffled by this. He goes to take a step back and put his hand uh, on the guide rail that is on a telephone pole to try to stabilize himself. And his hand goes right through the guide rail too. So it's at that moment that he says he realized that he'd left something back at the hospital that was probably very important. So um, there's no point in going to Richmond if you don't have a body to do it in. So he, at this point, says that he thought about going back to the hospital. And since he had a clear picture of the hospital in his head, he just appeared right there. He tries to explain traveling at the speed of thought, but there's really no words for it. You just think about it, you know what it's like, and you're there. Um, so he pops back into the hospital. He starts looking in the different rooms because he can't remember what room he came out of. And as he's looking at all these bodies, he sees that all of these sick men in the hospital all have the same haircut as him. They're all wearing the same clothes as him. And they all have the same blankets on as him because they're all in the military and they're all on a military base. So, uh, you know, everybody looks kind of the same. And he's freaking out a little bit until he stumbles upon a back room that he didn't realize what it was. And he gets a really you know, kind of cold feeling when he sees the body laying on the bed with the sheet pulled over its head has his class ring on its hand. Um, so as he's taking all of this in, he, you know, is trying to pull up the sheet to see his face, but he can't interact with it. And as he's doing all this, he sees a light at the head of the bed. And it gets brighter and brighter until he says that it is about the brightness of a million arc weld lights happening at the same time. And, um, you know, he goes into detail about this saying, you know, if I had retinas, they would have burned out immediately. But because I was not in a body, I was looking at my body on the bed. Somehow this light was just comforting. It just poured love and compassion and it had like a physicality to it. And he said that the light spoke to him and said, you know, come forward. And as he came forward, he saw a being there that he took to be Jesus. And uh, Richie was raised Baptist, so his experience was kind of coloring the atmosphere that he was stepping into a little bit. And um, I think that's important to remember with all of these cases that, that a lot of times people's upbringing does color what they see, but there are also so many cases of people who were raised a certain way and the things don't match what they what they thought or what they were told. And this is true for Richie as well, because he was told that as soon as you die, you would either go to heaven or hell. And he was finding himself just on earth, wandering around, still trying to accomplish the things that he had set his mind to right before he died. So this was pretty confusing to him. But um, as he found the light and he walked through it with this being that he, again, called Jesus, um, this being took him around to different places and showed him different experiences of people who were on the other side. And I'm not going to go into all of them because it's really long and detailed, but I will talk about a couple of the highlights that are pretty funny to me. There is one where he uh, is just in a city center and he's seeing other beings that are in his same predicament that were so focused when they died 
on certain issues that they didn't let them go and they were still chasing them around. And one of them is, you know, an old woman who is following her now adult son around and just screaming at him at the top of her lungs saying, you know, you you need to shine your shoes, you need to get your shit together, your life's a mess, what's wrong with you? And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just blissfully unaware walking around. And, you know, there's another scene that he describes of a man in an office building at a uh, business that, you know, Richie kind of assumes that he created. And he's just there screaming and trying to boss all these people around, but they're walking right through him and not paying any attention to him and doing the exact opposite of what he's saying because he's not alive and he won't let go of that room anymore. Um, one of the other things that happens in this same space is he goes into a bar and Jesus like takes him into this bar and shows him the bar and he sees people in the bar drinking and having a good time but then he also sees these disembodied beings like himself who are desperately trying to grasp at the you know mugs and the bottles of alcohol as they're being poured and uh, you know trying to get a drink and they just can't do it because they can't act or interact with the physicality. So one other thing he notices in this space is that certain people in the bar are getting like blackout drunk, like completely wasted. And at that point, some of these disembodied spirits start to step into their body and like experience their drunkenness and like move them around a little bit and kind of take control when they're blacked out. And... It's really interesting that he says that. I'm not saying that for any particular reason to try to make anybody feel any kind of way about this, but it is interesting that he says that and that it is also like a really ancient folklore that certain alcohol is called spirits specifically because of what he's describing in this, that there are stories about this happening for years and years. It's like an ancient tale that you know, if you loosen your connection to your body enough, something else will step in and take control. And uh, again, I'm not saying this for any particular reason, but I just thought it was interesting and it was something that he was pretty adamant about, you know, when he came back that this is what happens when you get beyond a certain level of drunk. And he himself says, you know, I'm not saying don't drink because I drink, I enjoy a drink. But, uh, you know, when you get to a certain level beyond your own control, something else may step in and make some decisions that you're not exactly happy about. So um, from there, he's taken to a, another space. He's taken to three different spaces between here and there, but I'm not gonna go into them. The other space that I wanna talk about that he sees is something that a lot of people see in their near-death experiences, which is what he describes as a center of learning. It's basically just a huge library and there's people giving lectures and talks and there's people learning and studying all over the place. And he kind of asked Jesus, like, what is this place? Where, where am I? And he says, without speaking, because this is all, everything's being communicated telepathically. That's something else I didn't mention. Um, that he is in the halls of learning and the storage place of all of the holy books for the entire universe. And he's a little taken aback by this because, you know, first of all, he hadn't really grappled with the fact that our universe might be populated by more than just this planet. And second of all, um, he asked to see the Earth area, the Earth room for holy books. And he said it was a relatively small room compared to the enormous size of the rest of the place. Because he said that, you know, the place basically would be the size of an entire major city 
under one roof and everything is just books and learning and tables and places to, you know, take in information. So, um, as he's asking to see the, the earth room, he goes in there, he looks around, um, he sees the Bible, which is what he was expecting because he's Baptist and he thinks in his mind that the only way to get to heaven is to believe in Jesus. But he's astonished to see that next to the Bible is the Torah and other Jewish holy books. And then next to that is the Quran and other Muslim holy books. And then he starts to see the Bhagavad Gita and other Hindu holy books and all these Buddhist holy books and books from cultures that he doesn't even recognize and you know has never even heard of. And this is all in the earth section. And he is kind of taken aback by this and he gets the impression, the telepathic impression from Jesus that none of the actual denomination matters. You are basically just supposed to find your own culture's way of expressing the mystery, the wonder, the, you know, worship or whatever you want to make it into of this whole experience, of the whole thing. So he comes back from this completely changed and, you know, he tells this story for the rest of his life, going to different schools and different churches and talking to people about the fact that you know, really, we just need to stop focusing on what religion we are and what filter we're looking at all this through and learn to love each other the best we can. And it's crazy because this is one of the things that will stand out throughout every near-death experience you hear just about. Um, so yeah, Raymond Moody hears this when he's still a philosophy student and it blows his mind um, because he already knows about Plato's Republic and he already knows about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Egyptian Book of the Dead a little bit. And uh, he's starting to put these pieces together. And as he talks about it more, um, you know, he talks to other students. He talks to um, his students when he becomes a teacher. He talks to other professors. He talks to doctors about this. And the more he talks about it, the more he gets stories just pouring in of, you know, this happened to me, this happened to my brother, this happened to my uncle, this happened to my sister, my mom, my grandmother, this happened, you know, everybody has some story of this thing happening that they're keeping under wraps because it's the late 60s, early 70s while he's gathering these stories and a lot of people don't want to talk about these things. And I can attest to this a little bit if you allow me to break off from the stream of thought here. Um, the reason I love doing this podcast is because I want to talk about these things as much as I can. I want to put this out there as much as I can because every time I do, I find other people who are having either similar experiences or something that completely blows my mind that is something I just read about. It's, it all comes together in such a crazy way. Like even the day that I finished recording the Children Who Remember Previous Lives podcast, um, like literally I hit end on that and finished editing it and I walked into my living room and a friend of mine had brought somebody to the house that I'd never met before. And as we got to talking about things, I explained to them that I just, you know, finished this podcast and they were like, oh, that happened to me actually. Like my parents tell me, they said, I don't, you know, really remember this, but it's something that my parents tell me happened a lot when I was a kid that uh, when I was little, I would always talk about when I was older, the time when I was older, before, when I, when I was older and I was working or when I was doing this and traveling. And they were always baffled by it. And then one time, you know, this person, they went to school and they were uh, drawing a picture of a building that stood out in their mind as a memory. And, you know, the teacher came over and looked at the drawing and was like, oh, this is a very 
distinct building. I know this building. This is, you know, a museum in this certain city. I can't remember all the details because this happened several weeks ago and I've read so much since then. But, <laughs> um, you know, they, they were like, no, uh, where did you, where did you see this? When did your family go to, I think it was Chicago and see this building. And they had never been to Chicago, but they had a very clear picture of this building in their mind. And obviously this isn't like proof this isn't some verified story that somebody has studied, but the fact that this happens to people all the time is so insane to me. And the fact that nobody knows about it and doesn't talk about it is doubly wild. Like just from reading these books and talking about this, a friend that I've known for years and years at this point uh, told me that he used to tell his parents stories of when he lived before in the Victorian times and described things with eerie detail that like creeped them out. And this is stuff that I would never hear about. This is so interesting and fascinating, but it's something that nobody will really talk about unless they're prompted to. And here's the prompt. I want to talk about these things, you know? That's why one of the reasons I'm doing this. I want to get these conversations out there. I want them to come back in whatever way that they can. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been happening a little bit already. I want to keep that momentum going. I want to keep these conversations going. And that's exactly what Raymond, Raymond Moody wanted as well. And that's what he found to be true. The more he talked about them, the more he found them. And he started presenting these cases. He would, you know, make a collection and he would talk about them and the similarities he found between the different stories that he was told by these different people, you know, from different cultures, different parts of the country, all over the place. It didn't seem to matter race, creed, or, you know, what your family history was. If you died and you had this brush with death where you were revived, you would come back with some amazing story that would often have a lot of the same details as other people who you had never met or heard of, you know? And that's a really crazy coincidence, if you want to call it that. But, um, so he starts noticing these patterns enough that he feels it's time to sit down and write a book in 1975, the one I referred to earlier, Life After Life. And, you know, this book was expected to sell only 5,000 copies, and they were proud of that. Like, him and his publisher talked about it. They were like, yeah, 5,000 copies will be great. That'll be awesome. And then we can all move on with the rest of our lives. But uh, that's not what happened at all, because this book took off. It got media attention and, you know, it started selling millions of copies, got translated into several different languages. And at the time, I don't know if it still is, but for a very long time, it was on the list of best-selling nonfiction books of all time. So in this book and the subsequent book, the following book that was uh, titled Reflections on Life After Life, which was basically the sequel to that book, but it was just him addressing the responses that he got to Life After Life uh, in like a collected form and adding a little bit to the study. Um, so between those two books and his other book, uh, Beyond the Light, that's where most of my references are going to be coming from for the things I'll be talking about for the rest of this episode. Because um, between those books, he starts to notice all these patterns and he adds to them and he builds on them and you know discusses the different possibilities within them and it's really fascinating so that's why i chose raymond moody to be the jump off point for what happens after we die so um the first thing that comes out of this is a model of what raymond moody calls the typical near-death experience and this is a fictionalized version of a near-death experience that basically just has all the overlapping elements that he noticed were most common among people that he spoke to. 
And I want to really press on that this experience is different for everybody. It is unique, it is personalized, it is something that you see through your own filters of existence and the way that you have lived your life on this planet. So it's going to be a little bit different for everybody, but there are common features that a lot of people experience. And one of the reasons that I want to point out how different and unique all of these are is that after these books came out, there became kind of a dogma that people were using these things as a checklist to judge people's near-death experiences. And that is not what he intended at all. He writes in a much later book where he's talking about his life and his uh, you know, journey through experiencing and researching these things that everybody really just needs to lighten up and stop taking anybody's word as gospel because everybody's experience is going to be different and different researchers are going to talk to different people and find different results and that's just how everything's going to work with this because of the fact that it is so personalized. So, um, I'm going to read to you the typical fictionalized experience that he lays out in Reflections on Life After Life and then we'll go through some other things that he talks about, but I'll get this out of the way because I hate reading out loud. So. Um, he starts by saying, a man is dying, and as he reaches the point of greatest physical distress, he hears himself pronounced dead by his doctor. He begins to hear an uncomfortable noise, a loud ringing or buzzing, and at the same time feels himself moving very rapidly through a long tunnel. After this, he suddenly finds himself outside of his own physical body, but still in the immediate physical environment and he sees his own body from a distance as though he is a spectator. He watches the resuscitation attempt from this unusual vantage point and is in a state of emotional upheaval. After a while, he collects himself and becomes more accustomed to his odd condition. He notices that he still has a body of sorts, but one of a very different nature and with very different powers from the physical body that he has left behind. Soon other things begin to happen. Others come to meet and help him. He glimpses the spirits of relatives and friends who have already died, and a loving, warm spirit of a kind he has never encountered before, a being of light, appears before him. This being asks him a question non-verbally to make him evaluate his life and helps him along by showing him a panoramic, instantaneous playback of the major events of his life. At this point, he finds himself approaching some sort of barrier or border, apparently representing the limit between earthly life and the next life. Yet he finds that he must go back to earth, uh, that the time for his death has not yet come. At this point, he resists, for by now he is taken up with the experience in the afterlife and does not want to return. He is overwhelmed by the intense feelings of joy, love, and peace. Despite his attitude, though, he somehow reunites with his own physical body and lives. Later, he tries to tell others, but has trouble doing so. In the first place, he can find no human words adequate to describe these unearthly episodes. He also finds that others scoff, so he stops telling other people altogether. Still, the experience affects his life profoundly, especially his views about death and its relationship to life. So, in this experience that Raymond Moody has just laid out, he makes several choices uh, about different types of experience. Um, I will go over those a little bit in the next section that we're going to talk about because almost every feature that he describes there or every like moment decision that he seems to make in this, there is like 
another common element that will happen that will not be the same or sometimes be the opposite of that. Um, but he came up eventually in his writings with the 15 common features that most near-death experiences have. And once again, this is not a checklist. This is not anything to be dogmatic about, but this is just something he found in his research and it does permeate a lot of other people's research as well. It is very common. Um, he was someone who was criticized as not being necessarily too scientific about the research that he did because he was mostly just collecting stories and putting them together and, you know, basically just using his own mind to analyze them. He didn't come up with any kind of checklist or question list. He just let people tell their stories and then he interviewed them as a grief counselor or a psychiatrist would. Um, ask them philosophical questions. You know, he, he got a lot out of these people. But the research itself was really refined after his books came out. There were a lot of other scientists and medical doctors that got a hold of this information and, you know, found it to be true through their own experience and through their own, you know, discussions with their patients. But they took it to another level of making a checklist of questions. They, you know, would come up with tables, they would take statistics, they would do all of these things. And Raymond Moody was more just interested in the broad strokes experience and presenting that to the public in the best way that he could. So now I'm going to take you down the 15 common features that Moody came up with in his research. Um, number one on this list is a deep sense of love and compassion. And this is something that washes over people at completely different times in their experience. Some people feel it as they're leaving their body, as they're hearing themselves pronounced dead. Um, you know, it's something that, that occurs right away and they're just immediately at peace. Um, there's a story of a soldier in the Vietnam War who was shot several times and fell down into a hole. And he says that, you know, he went from being terrified and running to feeling the bullets pierce him and immediately just a, a sense of love and compassion and acceptance washed over him. And uh, as he fell into the hole, he was leaving his body and he felt no regret, no remorse, no terror, no, no like angry feelings towards the people that had killed him. He just felt relief, love, and compassion. And he had a pretty similar experience to the one that Plato's uh, Republic describes in that he saw the other soldiers that had been dying on the, on the battlefield rising up as well above their bodies with him. And uh, at a certain point, he observes the medics come and, you know, resuscitate him and, you know, patch up his wounds. And then he reenters his body. So, um, you know, that, that person had that experience right away. Other people, you know, they pop out of their body or they have the tunnel experience and they're like very afraid right away. Like the, the fear just kind of hits them in the first point. And even people who describe negative near-death experiences of like seeing horrifying visions or having to confront sides of themselves that they had been, you know, repressing and burying on purpose for years. Um, at some point in their near-death experience, they will talk about how they felt a love and compassion coming out of that situation. That there was a light that was at the end of all of this or that there was some kind of experience that they had where they felt they overcame this negative experience and they felt in that an unexplainable love, compassion, and just acceptance. And that's like one of the common things that people come back from this with as well is that you just cannot express 
the level of unconditional love and acceptance you feel when you are on that other side and once you've dealt with all your demons, essentially. Number two on this list is the out-of-body experience. And this one's going to be long. I'm going to warn you right off the top. I'm going to go into this in detail because it is super interesting. So in Raymond Moody's typical experience that I just read to you a moment ago, he talks about how upon leaving the body, many people find that they still have a body of sorts. And that is true in a lot of situations. Some people feel that they still have arms and legs of some kind, that they still have the rough shape of a human while they're out there. Some of them still see themselves as the body that they were in. Like if they were to look at themselves from the outside, they can see that they're even still wearing the same clothes sometimes as the experience that they had just had in a physical body. Um, others though describe something completely different. They, they describe feeling as if they are only a point of consciousness or a sphere that can look in all directions and simultaneously see from all directions. And this is something that people that have the out of body experience with a body sometimes experience as well. Well, they'll, they'll know or feel themselves floating above the room or over a doctor's shoulder or over the road where they just had a car accident and they will feel themselves either in a body or in, you know, this sphere or point of consciousness, but they're seeing themselves from all angles. They're seeing everybody who's coming to help them from all angles, from, you know, every side, from underneath, they're seeing the bottom of their shoes, the top of their head, all at the same time. And people who die in hospitals even describe sometimes seeing the rooftop, the room that they're in, the other rooms around it, and the dirt underneath the hospital all in one view. But somehow they're able to cycle through all of this and understand everything that's going on. In this state, they talk about even feeling the feelings of other people who are in the room. And like, it, it's just so amazing the vast differences that some of these people experience. Um, there's one woman, Natalie Sudman, who wrote a book called uh, The Application of Impossible Things that I, I listened to on audiobook. And it's an amazing book, uh, but she describes the out-of-body experience in a very, uh, in a way that I like a lot. Because she talks about still having a body, but that she felt that the reason she still had a body was because it had turned into somewhat of a habit to maintain the shape of a body. That her soul or consciousness or whatever it is that separates out of the body had been holding that shape for so long that it just felt natural to still maintain that shape, that humanoid outline and that, that physical appearance that she had become so used to. And, you know, she describes it as like, you know, when you're a kid and you stand in a doorway and you push your arms out as hard as you can against the sides of the doorway for like, you know, 15 to 30 seconds. And then you step forward and your arms just gradually rise up without any effort whatsoever. Um, she describes it as being kind of like that, but she got the idea that it would take an immense amount of concentration to give up this shape on the other side, that it would be something that would either happen naturally, gradually, or that it would be something that she would have to actually take the time and focus on not being a body anymore. Um, her experience is great, and I will talk more about that in the next episode. In this episode, I just kind of want to lay out the framework of what the typical experiences are and what the common elements are. And then in the next episode, we'll start to break down things a bit more. So number three, on his list is moving through darkness. And 
This darkness is sometimes a tunnel, sometimes it's a valley, sometimes it's just a great expanse with no features whatsoever. People describe it completely differently. And they also describe having it at completely different times in the near-death experience. So one person will have it as they're leaving the body. It'll be the form through which that they leave the body. They'll see a tunnel, they'll move either up or forward or down through this tunnel, and then they'll find themselves outside of the body. Other people will say that it happens after they leave the immediate physical environment. That, you know, there's one woman who talks about having uh, left her body, seeing her body laying there dead on a bed, and then as she leaves the room that she's in, then she finds herself in this great black expanse where she sees other souls kind of wandering around, but uh, she's headed straight towards a bright light that, um, you know, eventually envelops her in this unconditional love and, you know, the kind of typical thing that we talk about here uh, as far as the love, compassion, acceptance, all of that. Um, so this darkness it can be experienced many different ways. Some people see a light at the end of it. Some people just pass through it and they're out of their body. It can be all kinds of different things. Um, number four is a feeling of being somewhere not of this earth. Now, in cases like Dr. Ritchie's case that I described earlier, um, this can be a big learning hall full of books and full of, you know, lectures and teaching and studying implements and things that you can learn from. Some people find themselves in a garden where they say everything is brighter and illuminated and full of energy in a way that they can't even begin to describe. Um, other people will see themselves in cities. Uh, you know, this view is one of those other things that seems to take on the filter of whatever experience the person has had on earth and what they are more drawn to. You know, I described in the first episode of this show, my friend uh, who had had a near-death experience that kind of stuck with me for the rest of my life. And in that experience, he describes seeing a scene in the desert uh, and being approached by a being that when described by somebody would be terrifying and they would probably be convinced that they were in hell. But by him, from his experience, he was comfortable. He was happy. This being was something that was interesting and crazy looking to him. And that's what he enjoyed. He enjoys those things in life. So that's what he saw. And, uh, I, I think there's some kind of connection there to that for sure. But, um, so yeah, that again, the, uh, otherworldly place, often kind of depends on what your goals are, what your life is like. Um, let's see. Number five on the list is kind of a fast-moving thought process that people seem to have on the other side, where things just seem to click and their mind is moving quicker than it ever has in their entire lifetime. Like, uh, ideals will pop into their head and they'll fully explore them inside their own mind within the matter of seconds or, you know, no time at all. It'll just be one thought, then another thought, then another thought layered on top of each other. And all of them are just simultaneously fully explored and everything uh, just starts clicking and making sense. Um, the number six on the list is going to be encounters with deceased uh, loved ones, religious figures, or uh, beings of light. And again, this is something that is kind of depends on the person. Uh, some people will see their relatives. They will see 
loved ones that they had trouble with, they'll see loved ones that they miss dearly, they'll see friends that they haven't seen in a long time and that they grieved over harshly, they'll see people that they, you know, didn't have a chance to say goodbye to at all um, or didn't have any connection with at all. There's one guy who describes seeing his father standing on a beach when he had his near-death experience and him and his father did not have a close relationship whatsoever, but they were able to reconcile in this other space. And he came back from that experience knowing that him and his father did have a love that was not expressed. And that when he dies, his father said, I will come for you. You know, you know, now's not your time, but when you do die, I will come and I will be the one to walk you over to the other side. And he found that very comforting. So some people have those experiences. Other people will see religious figures like Dr. Ritchie did. He saw Jesus in his experience. Um, there's, you know, other cultures will see uh, Buddha, we'll see Krishna, we'll see Muhammad, we'll see Moses, we'll see Elijah, we'll see whatever their experience is. Um, some of these people will just see a being of light and they will prescribe that filter onto them. They will say, you know, this was a being of light that appeared to me as a pure light consciousness that I knew was alive and was communicating with me and loved me deeply. And because I'm Christian, I knew it to be Jesus. Or because I'm Hindu, I knew it to be Krishna. And, uh, you know, that's just how they explain it. But people who die and have these experiences as, as atheists will just say it was a being of light. And they will describe the same feelings and the same interactions in a lot of cases, but you know, it was just a being of light. Again, in my friend's case, it was a different being entirely, but it did have a consciousness and did connect with him and he did feel the love and acceptance of that experience. Um, so then we'll get to number seven is telepathy. And that's how these beings seem to communicate in this space. Obviously, if you've left your body, you don't have vocal cords anymore. You don't have a mouth to express these things with. And even people have described trying to mouth the things, but they're really just expressing what's inside of themselves. And Dr. Ritchie and several other people talk about how in this space, there is no such thing as hiding an emotion. There is no such thing as deceitfulness. Everything is just there. Your experience is your experience. Your thoughts are your thoughts and they are there, they are loved, they are accepted, but they are known by whoever is around you because that is the type of connection that exists in this space. And that is something that leads so many people to know and understand that we are all one thing. That is one thing that always comes back to all of this is that we are pieces of God interacting with each other in these separate consciousnesses and that when we leave these bodies that really somewhat accentuate the separation that really make us feel completely separated when we leave these bodies that we feel the connectedness even though we still do have some sort of individuation where we're able to experience our own experience but if you want to line up with another experience you can as well through telepathy or through whatever other type of sense experience you want to have um then we can get to number eight here on the list which is the life review and the life review is one that has become such a trope in our culture. You know, people say they saw their life flash before their eyes when something uh, big or terrible or scary is about to happen. And that is one of the most common elements in actual near-death experiences. But for people who have actually died and been resuscitated, they talk about these life reviews in a way that is 
more detailed than just seeing the major events of your life. Like that's another choice that Raymond Moody made in saying and talking about the life review in his typical experience that he laid out. Um, he says that these people see the major events of their life played out simultaneously in a panoramic view. That is the experience of a lot of people. Some people will just see the major events of their life. Other people will see every single second from birth to death, from birth to the moment that they're currently standing in. They will see all of it happening at the same time on all sides of them. And they will be able to comprehend it because again, as I was describing, they're in a state of consciousness outside of the body that absorbs a lot more. They can see things from all angles and you know, from within all angles. And it's something that permeates all of it. We're able to take in so much more, the faster thinking, the tel telepathy, the, all of it is, is all there in this life review. And something a lot of people describe in this life review, well, some people will see it. I, I, I should back it up and say, some people will see it as just played out on one screen directly in front of them. Other people will experience it as being back in their body and having the full life experience. Like there's a comedian named Jessa Reed that uh, I will talk about more in her and in, in her near death experience in the next episode. But um, she had the experience of reliving her entire life second by second in like a fast forward, like simultaneous motion. And she felt as if she just lived the whole thing over. There was no difference between the first time she did it and the near-death experience version of it, except that the near-death experience version of it was all compiled into like an instantaneous moment. Another part of this life review that is very common though is that people will not only feel the emotions that they experienced during this life review, during all the moments that they're seeing, they will experience the emotions of all of those affected by it. You know, some people will talk about how they felt you know, just for instance, they would see a scene of themselves as a younger child being mean to their sister, to their sibling. And they will not only feel the emotions of being mean and putting that out there and knowing that it's not necessarily the best way to connect and love my sister, but also it they will feel the feelings of their sibling, of their sister being hurt by what's being said. They'll feel anger well up inside or fear or frustration. And they'll feel the experience of letting, you know, the response come out. They'll And then they'll experience the feeling of the vibrations that that echoes out through the entire environment they're in, you know. They will have the experience of the, you know, dirt in the corner of the room or the, the bug that's flying through the tree or the, you know, bird that just landed next to them or the cat that was in the house. They'll have all of the experience at once and it's like an overwhelming sense of how much we actually affect our surroundings. Um, and again, this kind of plays into what I talked about in the Children Who Remember Past Lives episode about there being, you know, a separate part of us, a part of us that is higher than just what we're experiencing in the body and that experiences the full connection with all things around us. That's these, you know, there's the idea that I expressed in that episode was that, you know, our brains do not produce consciousness, but rather they are antenna that receive consciousness and that they are designed by this consciousness to receive it in a certain way that we can communicate with each other. We can have a full experience in these bodies 
and experience the idea of separation. That's kind of what it all came down to. And this is another thing that points to that being the case because if you are in the body experiencing all these things only from your point of view, it would only be fitting that after you are done in this body, you would get a glimpse at what all of those experiences look like from your higher self, from the thing that is controlling your brain like an antenna or like a you know PlayStation controller or whatever analogy I used. Um, something else he talks about that Raymond Moody talks about in these books is that the being of light that is with you that will normally ask you a question to make you review your life. Um, I should talk about that question real quick as well because usually he will ask you or it will ask you, uh, what have you done with your life? And that is not a question of judgment. It is not a question of you know, you have to prove anything to me. It is literally, as he says it in his description, a prompting question. And it just makes you think, like, what's my life been like? And as you think that, this panoramic view or this experience will uh, unfold around you, within you, or, you know, however it, it seems to happen for this personal experience. Um, so as he's describing all of this love and unconditional acceptance that this being is pouring out. Um, he's very quick to point out also that, uh, you know, any judgment that's happening in this space is coming from within you and not from this being. That the most that the other being, that this light being will give you when it sees something that is, you know, maybe not the most loving or connected thing that you could do in that situation that the being will seem to laugh or make jokes with people about like, well, you, you kind of beefed that one, didn't you? <laughs> you know, like something, something along those lines. It seems to have a sense of humor about the whole thing. But the judgment that people talk about in, you know, the New Testament, um, he also points out that, you know, in the New Testament, it talks about judgment after death, but it does not say in the original translations where the judgment comes from. And he's saying that that's because the judgment comes from within. It's just a general judgment of you understanding that I'm a bigger thing, that I could have been loving and learning and experiencing compassion and connectedness this whole time, but I chose these experiences, so I'm going to look at them through that lens. And that's how that makes you feel. So, yeah. In Reflections on Life After Life, his second book, um, he got a lot of questions after the first book about describing these experiences and saying, you know, especially from religious people saying, you know, what about hell? You talk about so many good experiences and you mentioned that there are bad experiences, but you don't really go into detail on them. And it seems like they almost never happen. It's like a very, very small minority of people who have any kind of negative experience or fear in their experience whatsoever. So what about hell? What about people who have done terrible things? Like, does nobody burn in hell? Is there no justification for these things? And his response is essentially that this life review would be the most hellish thing that somebody could go through if they had been a deliberately terrible person. Because once you've connected with this higher self and you've felt all these feelings and understand the love and compassion and the connectedness that was possible, and you look at all of these decisions you made, like the example he gives is of maybe a Nazi in World War II. If they were to have this experience and they were to experience not only their actions from their point of view, but from everybody who has been affected by them, then those feelings would be rippling feelings that move through entire populations of people. 
You know, when you're flipping the switch on killing, you know, a dozen, two dozen people at a time, when you're displacing people from their homes, when you're shooting people for running away, you would be feeling the fear and confusion and anger and despair of all of these people. And not only those people, but potentially the family of those people, the people who don't even live anywhere near them, that, that get the news of their death, or you know the, the just the rippling waves of despair that would go through an entire population of people, uh, most of the world during that point in time. And he says, you know, I can't imagine a more like intense hell than having that experience of all of that hitting you at one time. And that's pretty much where he leaves it with that because. Again, like I said, even a lot of the more hellish experiences that people have of things that they're not confronting um, usually happen when people are in a dark place that they have been, you know, kind of suppressing or repressing their emotions to such an extreme that they have not been able to face them at all in their, you know, waking embodied life. And... You know, that's something I'll get more into in the next episode as well, because there are other people who have studied that concept in a little bit more depth. But for now, we'll just keep going through this list. So number nine, something some people experience is an all-knowingness. Like they know everything about the life that they've lived, life in general, the entire universe, all just makes sense to them at one time. And it's kind of like a remembering, some people say, like, oh, this is the state that I am in when I'm not cramming myself down into a body and limiting myself to the perceptions of just the brain that I am interacting with. I know all things. I know how everything works. I see the world and the universe outside of space and time. I know the trajectory we're all on. I know why we're doing all of this and it all makes perfect sense that any time that they could even begin to formulate a question in their mind, the answer would just shoot right through and, and cut it off, that they would just have everything at their fingertips. Um, there's one woman who describes having this experience while being in a similar like hall of learning or library that Dr. Ritchie describes, but she says that when she was coming back into her body, she knew that that experience, that all-knowingness, was going to have to wash away to an extent. She came back with certain feelings and emotions and a lot of things being turned on inside of her that had previously not, a lot of connections being made that had previously not been. But the experience of all-knowingness uh, had to be washed away. And she was in a coma for a period of time after her near-death experience. And that's something that she describes as being necessary. She knew that the coma was coming. She knew that when she woke up from the coma, why it had happened because she had had this connection with everything and it needed to be washed away for her to be able to fully embody again. And I don't know, I find that endlessly fascinating. Like that's something we could talk about forever, but really I need to keep moving because I'm taking too much time here. So um, number 10 on the list is a need to finish time on earth. And this is experienced by some people as their own inner desire. Um, you know, they'll be a parent or uh, a guardian of somebody, or, you know, they just have things that they really needed to do, or they feel like they didn't finish whatever mission they came to earth to accomplish once they are outside of their body and realize that there might've been a mission to begin with. Um, so, they desire to come back to earth and finish their business. Other people, as Raymond Moody describes in his typical outline, 
have the experience of not wanting to leave, wanting to stay. They want to be where they are because they love it. They recognize it as home. They recognize it as more vivid and real an experience than being in a body is. So they want to stay there and they encounter someone or something that acts as a barrier to send them back to earth. And Raymond Moody usually describes in his books about how these things are usually gentle and loving. I think there is one instance where he talks about somebody being pushed by a loved one and finding themselves falling back into their body. Um, but in, uh, in PMH Atwater, another uh, researcher that I will talk about at length in the next episode, uh, she talks about how people have the experience of being screamed at by loved ones or screamed at by people they don't even know. Like, you have to go back. Like, a very vicious, like, it's time for you to leave. You can't be here anymore because if you stay longer or if you cross this border or whatever the case will be, uh, you'll stay dead, and that's not what you're supposed to be doing right now. So get back in there. Um, you know, everybody seems to experience this differently. People talk about um, in different analysis of this how it might be, you know, a, a sense of your spiritual evolution as to like what you've accomplished on this planet and how you look at things on this planet as to whether or not you feel the responsibility of coming back and finishing your business or, you know, maybe someone who isn't as spiritually evolved will have an experience of, you know, this uh, I want to stay, but I'm being forced to come back, whatever the case may be. That's obviously all speculation, as a lot of the conversations that we're going to have about what happens after death are. It's all a lot of speculation, a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of personal experiences. But um, I don't know. I think it's fun to think about. And uh, a lot of people feel that there is no hierarchy in any of this, and I tend to agree with that. But I would also say that you know there are different stages of evolution as well. And why it, while it may not be seen as a hierarchy, there are different roles that are being filled by different people at different times. And, you know, somebody who might be at a higher stage of evolution right now might be the teacher this time, and there, might, and there would need to be a student for that. But at another time, the student will become the teacher, and potentially, uh, if depending on how this whole thing cycles, the teacher will start over and become the student again. So who knows how all of this works out. It seems to be non-hierarchical while at the same time there being roles that are fulfilled uh, just based on what position you're in at the moment. So uh, I need to digress from that because that's another whole tangent. Um, let's see here. So number 11. This is one of my favorite ones because this is something that I have specifically experienced uh, on LSD. And that is that time doesn't exist. People get the feeling and the understanding of what timelessness means. And it's so heavy to them because it's so impossible to describe. Because in these bodies, we experience time as a movement in one direction. And it's just something that is constantly passing and that we can grab onto, but it just slips right through our fingers every time. There really is no way to get a complete view while we're in these bodies of what time is. And when you're outside of the body, then you have all of this expanded awareness that I've been describing this entire time. The idea of time not existing is just a fact. That's just what it is. Like time is a mode of experience to experience the separation and to experience growth and change. And that on these different levels, people will describe that time is either completely askew, that you experience time how you want to, either forwards or backwards, 
or from the outside view, or time just doesn't exist at all and everything is laying on top of each other as a one single now moment. And that is something that Buddhists and Hindus and you know mystics have been saying for thousands of years is that there is no past or present uh, or future. It's all now. It is all happening right now. It is all one thing stacked on top of each other and we are just experiencing it in one direction because that is the choice that has been made about the physical experience in this universe. Um, and, you know, that can get really heady to talk about again. Like, it's not easy to conceive, but it is the experience that most all of these people have. Um, you know, even all of these experiences I've described as linear, um, and, you know, that Raymond Moody lays out in his typical experience. A lot of these things are described as linear, but the people who have these experiences will often say that this is just the best way I can describe how it happened because all of the events that I'm telling you about were layered right on top of each other. I had my out-of-body experience, and as I was watching myself be pronounced dead, as I was watching the resuscitation attempt, as I was, you know, seeing these people try to resuscitate me and, and, you know, work around. And I was, in some cases, people are so immediately at peace or, you know, feeling the love and compassion and the, and the, you know, experience of their predicament. They're so washed up in it that they will immediately start telling the people who are trying to resuscitate them, no, stop, stop, stop doing that. I'm fine. I'm better now. You don't need to try to get me back in this body. I'm completely fine. Um, I just say that now cause I forgot to say it earlier, but, um, you know, they'll describe having that experience and the, you know, going through the tunnel and the being of light and the life review and the otherworldly experience and the coming back to the body all in a single moment. And it will all just be layered over top of each other. Like it's all one thing happening and, you know, in their brain, when they get back into their body, it's something that they pick apart and tell in a linear fashion, but that it doesn't exist as that when it's happening to them in this expanded consciousness. Okay, so number 12 on the list. Uh, there is usually a depression period or a disappointment period after people come back. And I will go ahead and just go into 13 because it, it kind of, uh, 13 and 14 actually, really uh, tie into this. So 13 is describing life as being dreamlike um, and feeling like the place that they just were was the real life. That, you know, the other side is how everything is supposed to be. That is home. That is where we all come from. But coming back into this body, they even if they voluntarily did it, there is a sense of, oh, wow, I'm stuck in this dream again. I got to start thinking about rent and bills and taking care of things. I have to worry about the ailments of having a physical body. A lot of times the experience of getting to this near-death experience is very traumatic on the body itself. So they have to heal something. They have a big period of downtime afterwards to really try to heal their physical body and get themselves together. And having just come from this infinite, open, expansive, uh, you know, consciousness experience, and then coming back down into a body that doesn't always work like you want it to, and social environments that don't always work like you want them to, and, you know, having all of these 
brain filters put back on everything can be very jarring and painful for some people. And it can cause depression or disappointment or, you know, in some cases people wonder like, why was I sent back when I wanted to be there? And they go through a period of wrestling with this experience. Um, some studies say that it takes up to seven years for somebody to fully integrate their near-death experience and understand that this is, you know, where I'm at now and where I'm supposed to be now because, you know, this experience has told me that there's more afterwards, but that doesn't mean I need to rush to get there. Um, so yeah, again, describing death as, or describing life as dreamlike and death as, you know, the, the real thing is number 13. Number 14 is the new outlook on life and relationships. So new outlook on life and relationships also plays into the depression because a lot of these people will come back and they will see things entirely differently. They will know that love is what really matters, that compassion and connection and learning and experiencing everything to the absolute fullest is what matters. And they have had this insane life-changing experience that they cannot even begin to put into words, but the rest of the world around them is entirely unchanged. And loved ones will look at them like they're absolutely insane as soon as they open their mouth about what they've seen. You know, it depends on what your background is or what your experience is, but you know, for some people who are like Southern Baptist or like certain sects of Christianity, if they tell anybody in their church that they've had this experience, they will be labeled as someone who was satanic and in some kind of communion with the devil. This obviously isn't true for every church and every, you know, congregation and the experience of everybody who's shared that because some, some congregations, some churches, some pastors will embrace this and say that this is a wonderful, beautiful thing that we need to learn from. But there are those that are very stuck in their ways and will say outright that you are now in league with Satan and, you know, we need to pray for you. We need to exercise these demons out of you. Um, another thing in one of the PMH Atwater books I read was talking about a boy who was either 8 or 12. I can't remember how old he was when he had a very intense near-death experience. And he told somebody in his church about it and they started sending elders and deacons to his house every week to, you know, try to exercise demons out of him and to scare him into denouncing the things that he had told everybody that he'd experienced. And eventually, you know, his parents moved out of that church and, you know, tried to start protecting him from these people because they were scaring him. But he was very adamant the entire time that like, I know God, I've seen God, I've experienced God, and he is not what you are saying. He doesn't want you to be doing this. He is not driving you to do this. He doesn't ask anybody to be this way. You're just being insane, essentially, is what is like the conclusion he comes to. But I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit. But like, I mean, come on. If that started happening to you, you, you would think the same thing. But even like beyond that, there are people who have explained this experience to a doctor or to a loved one and then been committed to a mental hospital because someone thinks that they're absolutely insane. And the changes in their life, the new outlook that they give, the, the different way that they treat their relationships, oftentimes in non-hierarchical ways where they just love everybody they come in contact with to the fullest extent they can, um, this seems absolutely insane to people. And there's even one man, like an older man who had a near-death experience that came back 
And before he had died, his wife said, I wish he was more compassionate. He's so hard. He's so mean. He's so like, you know, brutal about everything. And he came back from this near-death experience completely changed and loving and compassionate and, you know, willing to have new experiences. And she hated it. She was terrified. She was like, what did you do? What's happened to you? You're not the same person. So even the things that she thought she was asking for when they came true, they were just so uncanny that she was uncomfortable with them. She did not... She did not like it whatsoever. Um, so yeah, again, this can con contribute, excuse me, to the depression or the disappointment in being back because other people aren't having this experience and no matter how much you try to tell them, if they're not ready to hear it, it's just going to sound like you're insane. Um, but yeah, again, back to the list. Number 15, the very last one, is losing your fear of death. And again, this kind of plays into the whole thing as well. Like some people not being afraid of death anymore and be being willing to openly talk about death and what they experienced seems absolutely crazy to some people. And uh, I think it's healthy. I think it's wonderful. And even doing this research has changed my way of viewing death entirely. It doesn't seem like such a you know ending it doesn't seem like a stopping point anymore it seems like a jump off point it seems like just another step that we all have to take and i love that point of view and i love the point of view that the people who have had these near-death experiences express in their experiences and afterwards and, and and through it if you have the chance to look up and listen to different people talk about their near-death experiences. There's that show on Netflix. The very first episode is about near-death experiences. It's called Surviving Death. Um, that show, I don't really love the entire season of the show, but the first episode and the last episode are wonderful because they both talk about the things that I've been like talking about in these last two reincarnation episodes. They're awesome. Uh, but yeah, listening to those people talk about these things impassioned and like just the stories themselves and the very conviction and like even the hardships that some of these people have faced afterwards, like the d divorce rate of people who have had near death experiences is like around 75% in some studies, which is insane because people's lives just change so much that they aren't who they were before. And you kind of can't blame somebody for not wanting to be with them anymore when they're not the same person that they married. But also like, it is kind of sad. Like certain people have set up different support groups for people who have had near death experiences to help them walk through these experiences. And there's also support groups that have been set up for loved ones who have had near death experiences because, or you know, the loved ones of people who have had near death experiences, I should say a little more precisely. Um, you know, these, these experiences can shake people so much that it takes a whole community sometimes to get together and say, this is normal. This is okay. This is something that, you know, other people have experienced. Uh, it is estimated that somewhere in the range of 5 million people have recorded near-death experiences. Um, and that's growing constantly, but obviously all of this still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And in Reflections on Life After Life, and actually all of the books that Raymond Moody writes, he always leaves a section for naysayers, skeptics, doubters, and you know, addressing their questions and concerns that pop up throughout his presentations and throughout his publishing career. So the first question that pops up all the time is, did these people really die? 
Um, and do we really actually have any evidence of life after death through these experiences because these people were revived? And that's a big question and it's really hard to answer. And Raymond Moody is one of the first people to tell you in most instances, I don't know when these kinds of things comes up. There's a lot of things that we just don't know about them. It depends on your clinical definition of death as to whether or not you know you would consider some of these people dead. There have been people that have been hooked up to EEGs, having their brainwaves monitored, and they will have been dead, or in the process of a surgery, you know something will go wrong, and their brain, their heart, their vitals, everything will stop. And then it will take long enough that the brain activity will have died down entirely beyond detectable levels, inside you know this near-death experience zone like something that happens a lot that's really crazy about this is that people survive within a threshold of time that is way outside what we are taught that a human brain can survive without oxygen you know somebody will have no vitals no oxygen no heartbeat uh, no brain activity uh, for up to a half hour, an hour and a half sometimes. Like, it, it, the, the times are insane that some of these people have been dead. There have been people who have been pronounced dead and put into the morgue inside the cooler, inside of a coffin, you know, in all of these different situations, being prepared to be embalmed. And then they will revive out of nowhere after a period of hours, almost days sometimes. So, you know, these people are at the very least as close to death as you can possibly come. Um, if your definition is that, you know, without their own, uh, you know, without any help of their own volition, would they keep living? The answer for a lot of these is no, they would not have kept living. They would absolutely be dead without a resuscitation attempt. Um, but, you know, one of the big researchers that I'll talk about in the next episode is Michael Sabom and his view on it is that anybody who comes back from from the other side can't really give us a big full complete picture or even call it evidence of life after death because they're not actually dead they came back even if the circumstances were absolutely insane which he's experienced some of the more extreme experiences that i've ever read about uh but you know he's still very consistent with saying that we don't know what happens after you die until somebody's actually dead um, there are other questions such as, you know, maybe some of these people are just reacting to anesthesia. Um, something that Raymond Moody points out in his books again is that usually a doctor who is a skeptic will try to use his specialty, his like form of practicing medicine as the excuse, as if he's the first one to ever think about it or, you know, the first person to ever bring this to, to the attention of the researchers. Um, and... Obviously, they're not the first person to bring it to the attention, but uh, they're often like negating entire sections of the studies that have been done as well. Like somebody will say, like I was just talking about, you know, this is just the effect of anesthesia on the brain. Uh, these people are just having some kind of crazy trip. And what the research actually shows is that people who are heavily drugged at the time of their death before, you know, resuscitation are way less likely to have near-death experiences. That it's usually the people who are just lightly anesthetized or, you know, fresh out of a car accident that just happened that haven't even gotten any drugs put into their system yet or, you know, any of these other experiences because so many of these experiences happen without there even being drugs present in the system. 
Um, another one that comes up all the time is this might just be what happens when there's no oxygen in the brain. Uh, you know, this could just be a hallucination caused by a buildup of carbon dioxide and a low O2 level in somebody's blood. And um, Raymond Moody points out that Michael Sabom, the person I was just describing a minute ago, uh, he was actually dealing with a patient in surgery because he's a cardiologist um, who was having their blood oxygen levels monitored at the time that they died. And at no point during this time that they died, did they have a carbon dioxide buildup? In fact, their O2 levels actually elevated. And uh, this person had the full-blown near-death experience, the tunnel, the being of light, the relatives, the otherworldly place, the being put back in their body. They had the whole experience. All of the things that would suggest some kind of tie to lack of oxygen. And this person had elevated oxygen levels in their body. And obviously this is only one case, so it's hard to get a feel for this. But again, something else I want to point to in all of this is that these near-death experiences happen to people who don't even have anything physically traumatic happen to them. Um, there's, you know, cases of people who have been thrown through the windows of cars and, you know, like they land without a scratch. But in that time of the car accident, they will see themselves leave their body. They will, you know, see the whole scene unfold around them. Then they'll, you know, meet the being of light. They'll see a life review, all of the full experience, and then land back in their body. And they won't have a scratch on them. And they'll just be watching the car continue to tumble away from them or whatever the case may be. You know, that happens and the experience is so similar and comparable entirely to the people who die on the operating table under anesthesia. You know, have their heart stop, have their brain stop sending out signals that are detectable. Um, again, I say detectable because there's really no telling as to whether or not the EEG is actually picking up everything that's happening inside the brain at the time. But, you know, this is something that does happen continually. It's something that... Uh, you know, doesn't really matter the circumstances. There's even a story in one of the other books I'll talk about in the next episode of a lady who had an experience identical to a near-death experience while she was just going out to pick up her paper in the morning. You know, she thought that she was looking at the sunrise when she glanced up from picking up her paper, but she was actually seeing a light approach her that was completely otherworldly, that had a being essence around it. And then she left her body, had a life review, had the full-blown near-death experience, and when she came back, she just finished picking up her paper because there was nothing traumatic about her body experience. It was all in this out-of-body, this otherworldly experience that happened to her, and there was no death or physical trauma needed to induce it. It was just something that happened. It was like a vision of some kind. And... You know, this stuff happens all the time amongst people who are not uh, actually experiencing the trauma. And that will kind of segue me into the last thing I want to talk about, which is Raymond Moody's uh, fourth book that I read. I don't remember what number it is. In the, he's written so many books. But this one in particular is called Glimpses of Eternity. And it is about uh, what has become known as the shared death experience. And this is something that Raymond Moody actually experienced himself, but not before he heard about it. So before he even published Life After Life in, in 1975, he was on campus to get his medical doctorate. He had already finished his uh, philosophical doctorate, and he was moving into becoming a medical doctor. 
And while he was on campus, one of the doctors, one of the professors on campus that was higher up and over an entire branch of the campus, um, she approached him and said, I need to talk to you about something I know about the research you're doing. And she pulled him into his office and she described to him the experience of uh, watching her mother die. She said that, you know, she was around while her mother was uh, in the hospice phase. Uh, she was doing hospice at home. She had nurses come. But because she was a doctor, uh, you know, she took over a shift just watching her mom and being with her mom while she was dying. And during this time, her mother did die. She passed away. Um, she spent a solid half hour trying to resuscitate her. She did CPR and, you know, was just going at it until she just felt like there was no point anymore. She was like, okay, obviously this is gone. I'm not doing any good here. I'm just pressing on a dead body. And she was sitting back and catching her breath. And, you know, she started to relax a little bit. And then as soon as she relaxed and, you know, let it kind of set in, she left her body. And she saw herself hovering above her own body. And then she saw her mom was also out of her own body. And they were hovering above the entire scene together. And, you know, they started laughing and kind of, you know, comforting each other. And then she said that out of the corner of the room, she said that light just started pouring into the room as if a pipe had burst. She said it was like, you know, if, if a pipe burst in the wall and light and water was just shooting all over the room, it was that, but it was like a light with a physical presence. Like the light had a physicality to it. And from that light uh, came a loving, comforting presence that she felt herself. And, you know, she experienced friends of her mother that she had known growing up, relatives of her mother that she'd seen pictures of growing up, and then people she didn't even recognize, but her mother obviously did, came through this light and surrounded her mother and were hugging her and loving her and, you know, telling her it was going to be okay. Um, and then they escorted her through this light that had opened up in the side of the room and, uh, you know, on the other side, she could see the woman who was describing this could see her mother, you know, having this glorious reunion with all these people as the light slowly closed up. And then she went back into her body. This is the first experience of this kind that Raymond Moody had ever heard of. And it took him a long time to compile this list because, or this book, I should say, because, uh, it was way more rare. A lot less people were talking about it. It was something that didn't happen very often. Um, it's something that started to happen more often, he says, as the um, hospice movement picked up. Um, and I will talk a little bit about that in the next episode as well, because there's another near-death researcher who uh, was very involved in the hospice movement and, you know, making sure that people were more comfortable when they were dying because of this exact thing, because a lot of really wild experiences were happening to people before the 1930s while people were dying in their homes. There would be, you know, people would see lights when people would pass. People would see beings in the room that, you know, weren't physically there. Uh, all these different kind of crazy visions would happen to the loved ones of the person who was dying and to the person who was dying as well. But when people started moving into dying into hospitals in the 1930s, uh, dying became an emergency. And it was something that, 
if the person died, it was seen as a failure on the part of the medical staff. So it was always a rush. It was always a calamity. It was always, you know, trying to resuscitate until the very last second when there's absolutely no absolute possibility. And if this person dies, you are seen as a failure. And that feeling just permeates the entire experience. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was also the person, the psychiatrist who came up with the five stages of grief, she was the person who pointed that out and has helped many, many people understand and pass through the entire experience of grief with this discovery. Um, she championed the hospice movement specifically for this reason, so that people could go into a place where they could die comfortably, where they would have time and space for them and their families to accept and uh, come to terms with the fact that this person's life was ending. And when that experience started happening to more and more people, the shared death experience and the deathbed visions that had happened prior to the 1930s and been more common and more talked about in research from like the late 1800s and things like that started happening again. People started having these experiences while on their deathbed of seeing angels come to greet them. This happened to my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother died before my 25th birthday. I can't remember exactly when because I wasn't talking to my father's side of the family at that time, tragically. But at the time, those were the circumstances. So I wasn't around for her death, but my father was. And he called me on my 25th birthday and told me about my grandmother's death. And my grandmother was deaf and mostly blind. But uh, around the day of her death, it was like the morning that she died. And maybe even a few days before, I can't remember the exact details. And uh, my father passed, sadly, uh, earlier this year. So I can't ask him about it to get more details. But um, I remember him telling me specifically that she started talking about how she saw angels coming to greet her. And she was hearing music and seeing these beautiful things, but she could barely even see who was in the room with her half the time. She could barely even like tell who was there with her, but she could see these beings of light, these angels as she described them, clear as day. And she would sign to my father about you know, what she was seeing and talk about the music. And, you know, he wasn't hearing music. He wasn't seeing any of this, but he believed she was because of the conviction and the look on her face. And especially, this is something that seems to happen um, no matter what stage of dying you're in. Like some people are completely delirious. They'll be, you know, dementia, dementia ridden. They will have no idea who the people in their family are. But something that's very common that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about and that, you know, other people who have researched this talk about, it's something that's widely known in the circles of uh, hospice nurses now, is that sometimes three months to the, like, but anytime between three months and the day of somebody dying, they will reach some kind of stride of clarity. Well, they will come out of whatever fog they've been in and they will know everybody's name of everybody who's around them. They will address them by name. They will say their goodbyes. They will be very articulate and clear. And also they will start having visions, not all the time, but sometimes will also start having visions of seeing people that they know and love who have passed. They'll see, you know, dead siblings, dead parents. They'll see dead pets sometimes. Uh, long lost friends. They'll see people that they haven't thought about in years and they will come one by one or sometimes all together at different times to greet them and tell them it's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. And 
This is something that hospice workers deal with on, on a regular basis. There's a woman on TikTok uh, right now who I've seen her videos other places because I don't have TikTok, but uh, you know she's a hospice nurse that basically just talks about the different things that uh, she's experienced and the packet that she was given when she started being a hospice nurse uh, that just describes all the unexplainable things that she might come to expect in this line of work. And seeing lights is one of them. That's another common thing. It says like uh, even Duncan Trussell, the, the podcaster comedian that I like a lot that kind of put me on a little bit more of a spiritual path with some of the people that he talked to. Um, he talks about having volunteered at hospice. And he said that there was an experience that he had one time where he saw a woman uh, who was slowly dying, but starting to accept death. And it was like every time she leaned into it, every time she was just accepting it and letting it happen, the entire room would light up. And he said he couldn't even describe where the light was coming from. It was just her. She was radiating this light and it was coming all over the room. It was coming out everywhere and, and like it, it permeated everything. And you know, this this is something that is, was commonly known before the 1930s and didn't start really happening again until the hospice movement picked up and more people moved into it. And obviously some people in that space don't deal with the idea of dying. They don't deal with the fact that they're, that they're going to be gone soon. They spend the entire time or their family spends the entire time just fighting it like has been done for years and years prior. But, you know, this is something that when you accept it, you seem to have a more fluid, beautiful experience. Um, Raymond Moody collected a bunch of these experiences and glimpses of eternity. Um, he talks about how basically all of the same things that appear in the uh, near-death experience appear in some way, shape, or form in shared death experiences as well. People will be a part of the life review of their friend, partner, parent, sibling who is dying. It's not even always somebody close who has these experiences. Sometimes it's the doctors or the nurses who are in there taking care of them that will report these things, you know? But it's it's always very similar to the near-death experience. There's a woman in Glimpses of Eternity that talks about her husband dying of cancer. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, it was her son. Her son died of cancer. And when he died, she left her body with him. She saw a, like a mist or a light come up out of his body. And at that same time, she left her body. And while they were together, she could see him and know that he was happy and comfortable to be outside of his body finally. And then she saw his life review. She saw the whole thing unfold before her. She saw all the times that they were together when, when he was a kid. Um, she saw times when they were apart. He was an adult. So um, she saw like when he moved out, the friends that he was making in different places all over the country, wherever he lived, all the, you know, all the people that he knew, she got a glimpse at what these people meant to him. She saw experiences that they'd had together. And, uh, you know, after that she saw, you know, a archway open up, I believe. And, uh, you know, he walked through it with a being of light and then she went back into her body and obviously it's still traumatic to be in the room with your dead loved one, but it definitely softens the blow for these people who have these experiences. And again, as with the naysayers from the near-death experiences, these people aren't actually having anything bodily happen to them. There is no lack of oxygen. There are no drugs in their system. There is no like, you know, traumatic grappling with their own mortality in that moment. It is just them caring about the loss of a loved one 
and letting when they let it happen when they accept it these things tend to happen more often is what the research shows at least the only thing that Raymond Moody points out seems to be different that these people who have shared death experiences describe from the people who have had near-death experiences is that they will often say that at the onset of the experience, the shape of the room tends to change. And um, there's one person who had this experience who happened to be a geometry teacher. And the way he explained it was that it was an unearthly geometry. It was like the room just shifted and it bulged at the sides and twisted in a way or moved apart in a way that just didn't make any physical sense. But he was leaving his body as it was happening. So that didn't make a whole lot of sense either. And the geometry that he was experiencing was of a type that does not exist in the physical universe. And, you know, this is something that kind of commonly comes about. It'll be the first thing that people notice. It's like the whole shape of the room shifts and then, you know, light beings or the light will come out of their relative and they'll have some kind of reunion or they'll have some just come, some kind of knowing that something more is happening. And, you know, after a certain point, Raymond Moody had this experience with his own mother. Um, you know, she got really sick and, uh, you know, was given a very short period of time to live. So his whole family came and gathered around and all of them experienced the same thing when she passed. They experienced the room light up. Um, some people had different branches of the experience. Some people saw other beings come into the room. Some people saw the, the room shape change, but at least everyone in the room saw the light. That was like the one thing they all experienced at the same time. And the differences between his siblings and, and, and friends in the room's experience, I think really speak to the difference of experience that, uh, you know, your own personal filter puts on everything. But the fact that everybody has this experience that's in the room, at least has something happen, really kind of speaks to the fact that there is a phenomenon here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up now. We're at an hour and a half, and I'm happy to have finally been able to get through this all. I've tried to do this multiple times. And uh, yeah, I am so happy to be having this conversation still. Um, again, this is a conversation I want to have all the time. I want to keep talking about these things. So if you have anything you want to talk about, if you have anything you want me to read, uh, you know, any specific questions, whatever it may be, please feel free to reach out to me. You can get a hold of me on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at monolithseeker on both of those. I'm trying to use social media a little less more recently as I feel a lot of people are, or at least a lot of people talk about trying to do and then unsuccessfully uh, venture out into that. But uh, the other way and the way that I would prefer people try to get a hold of me is uh, my email address, which is monolithseekerpod at gmail.com. Um, yeah, no, no spaces or hyphens or anything like that. It's all just one word. So please reach out to me. Let's keep this conversation going. Um, I will have an interview coming up for you guys before too long with another good friend of mine. Um, and I will have another episode talking about near-death experiences and other after-death phenomenon before too long here. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this series going as long as I can. I keep having to narrow the scope of these episodes because I always bite off more than I can chew, as I believe I said at the beginning of the episode. But um, yeah, so just bear with me. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. 
And thank you also for spreading the word about this show. I, I have had a good number of people message me or, uh, you know, hit me up and tell me that they have told somebody about the show that really connected with it or that somebody told them about the show and they're really excited to dive into it. And uh, I, I just appreciate that more than I can even say. Uh, again, like I said, I, I want this conversation to keep going and growing, and that's the best way to do it is to spread the word. So uh, thank you for doing that work for me and uh, for being a part of this. And uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and end it up there. Thank you so much. Take care of yourselves and love each other and all that good stuff. Bye.